This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and Isabel Hardman. So we've just had Prime Minister's questions and there were some fierce exchanges on the NHS and Rishi Sunak on his uh, assessment of Keir Starmer's character. Here's what he had to say. Mr Speaker, if we are going to deliver for the British people, people need to have strong convictions. But when it comes to the Honourable Gentleman, he isn't just for the free movement of people, he's also got the free movement of principles. Fraser, what do you make of that? Uh, ultimately, the Prime Minister saying he's for the free movement of principles. I think Rishi Sunak is referring to the various policy shifts we've had on gender self-ID, on um, outsourcing on the NHS. It's a strange thing to attack somebody for. I'm also in favour of the free movement of principles, of thoughts. I'm in favour of changing your mind. And if I was Rishi Sunak, I'm not sure I'd be highlighting how much Keir Starmer has changed his mind, because he's changed them in a way that will basically make him more electable to Conservative voters. Like, he's changed his mind, for example, on free movement of people. He used to be in favour of it, now he's against it. Now, this annoys the Remainers, but this is sort of the sort of thing that your average wavering Tory voter would be quite reassured to see. We also need to work out that Keir Starmer has been on a bit of a journey. I mean, when he was the figure which just seized the leadership from Jeremy Corbyn, he had to lay out his, his various principles, I think, were still on his website. And one of them is to abolish tuition fees, university tuition fees. Now he's about to become Prime Minister, or so the polls say. He's obviously working out that would be a monstrous form of indefensible middle-class welfare, and he's not going to do it. So when you look at the areas he's changing his mind on, he is doing them in the way that make him and his party, in my view, more electable. And I'm all in favour of people dropping bad ideas and replacing them with better ones. So far, anyway, I've seen that as the direction of Keir Starmer's free movement of principles. Isabel, isn't the risk here that if Keir Starmer looks as though he changes position every year or so, anything he tells us he plans to do now or perhaps when Labour takes power can't really be trusted? I think there is a risk of that. I think one of the the questions is, did Keir Starmer have those principles to begin with, or was it a sort of matter of expediency? And I'd say that if you look back even before the leadership contest, that the way that he's operated as a politician has largely been about expediency and getting things done. Indeed, when you talk to people about his positive attributes, they often talk about making things work better and turning up to meetings on time, which in fairness in Westminster is a huge achievement. But I'm not sure that when he was campaigning to be Labour leader, he necessarily knew what he believed. And I think, as Fraser says, he has been on a journey probably in terms of his own thoughts about what a Labour government would stand for, what the Labour Party should do and so on. Because he does have lots of experience in public service, but largely in running organisations and making them work better, uh, rather than in sort of having a deep vision as a politician. So I wonder whether some of these pledges that have been binned are largely because he didn't think about them in the first place. And will the public notice that he said one thing in the Labour leadership contest and uh, is now offering another vision? No. But I think if you then start uh, you turning from pledges you're making now, that's when it becomes a bit of an issue. Fraser, what else would you like Keir Starmer to change his mind on? Oh, wait, a whole bunch of things. Um, so, uh, uh, and by the way, I might be getting my way. Just can, in case can, the Labour team are listening. You know. um, well, well, Some uh, of them do. So. Let's look at the big, one of the biggest subjects in this country, NHS reform. 
I would like him to be open-minded about, and very open-minded about the future of the NHS. I'd like him to prescribe as little as possible. I have got a hunch that the only future for the NHS is going to be co-payments. In other words, people who can afford to paying more into the system is going to need more market reforms, is going to need more providers outside the NHS structure coming in to help carry a burden which the NHS apparatus itself can no longer carry. But, you know, that, that there are so many ways of fixing the NHS. I would just like it to be done on a, on a sort of common sense, what works basis, as opposed to an ideological basis. And, and this is, by the way, what Tony Blair did. I'd be very happy if Labour were to get back into an Alan Milburn position circa 2001. And there, I think I, I might get I might get my wish. I'd like him to change his um, mind on other things. Like To be honest, the non-doms thing, it's, it's silly. You know, wouldn't really raise much money. I think the private school things is, is is disastrous and will cause real harm. But he's not going to change his mind there. But people accuse Tony Blair, let's remember, of being ideologically elastic, of doing or saying anything to get elected, and he was punished by the voters by by three landslide victories. So it's not always a bad thing. I think it's interesting when you mentioned NHS reform. What a journey he's been on there, and I think that's partly down to where Streeting, his shadow health secretary, who has moved him into a position where. Where, as you say, Fraser, he's much more comfortable with the idea of external organisations, independent healthcare providers, uh, helping clear the backlog, where he seems to be really happy and excited about a fight he's now having with the BMA over effectively nationalising GPs, uh, making them salaried doctors as opposed to independent contractors, basically, working with contracts for the NHS. And I, I think that desire to have a bit of a scrap is a new development in the Labour leader's approach to politics. He's obviously been having internal fights with hard left members of the Labour Party, but now to go in for a fight with the GPs, who actually are probably the the part of the NHS that the public have particularly strong reaction to given they can't get a GP appointment and the number of times I've heard Keir Starmer over the past week or so talking about this 8am wait on the phone to get a GP you'd think that that was what he spends his entire life doing is just trying to phone GPs up but I think that sort of desire for a public spat is is really fascinating on the NHS and does hark back not just to the the Milburn era in terms of Labour's relationship with the NHS where Alan Milburn talked about Labour's relationship with the private sector not being a one-night stand, but being for the long term. I'm not sure we're going to get quite that language from Keir Starmer, I have to say. But also Alan Johnson, who, when I interviewed him for my forthcoming book on the NHS, he talked to me about how difficult GPs were to reform and how basically the only way you could get them to do anything was to threaten them. I think he's probably picked that up from Alan Johnson. Now, on the subject of the NHS, we also had at Prime Minister's Questions a clash over ambulance waiting times. Keir Starmer going on the attack there, ultimately um, saying the Prime Minister um, had presided over these delays, which means now emergency calls are taking, for some people, more than two and a half hours. Rishi Sunak hit back talking about the minimum service level legislation at the moment. And it's quite an interesting dividing line between the Tories and Labour because the Tories are actually quite unified about minimum service levels, whereas Labour are massively going on the attack. Fraser, who do you think is doing better from that argument? Well, 
you say in your political comcast in the new magazine coming out tomorrow that they think this is working for them. The Tories think that the strikes um, the sort of minimum service level it's it's controversial. They're getting a lot of flag from it. I was reading an article in the German press today saying the Tories have abolished the right to strike. You know, so around the world it's getting sort of shock, but the it's going down well with the voters the Tories want to reach. But overall, I think that the Tories are very vulnerable into who let the NHS get into this mess in the first place. And it's pretty difficult. So, and then you, you, this comes up to the question, which party do you most believe will change the NHS? I think that it's funny now, it's, when you switch on somebody saying well, the NHS is a disaster, that it's imploding, you're as likely now to be hearing somebody from a nurse's union or a doctor or saying, making that point. So it's no longer party pre, I think, to say that well, the NHS is in crisis and needs reform. If the question is which party is more likely to bring that reform, then Labour is preferred by a quite a, a big margin now. And that's why I think we can hear, as we heard in PMQs today, Keir Starmer again zeroing in on um, ambulance response times, because there now it's not difficult to find some pretty shocking examples of how long people are waiting for ambulances, which underlines in a very sort of visceral way the sense that this government simply isn't working and that the Tories are um, letting it fall apart. And just finally, Isabel, still related to health, as part of the Times Health Commission, there's been a story today, which is cake in the office should be viewed like passive smoking, says food regulator chief. And this is ultimately bringing cake into the office should be seen as harmful to your colleagues in the same way as if I were to light a cigarette right now, which of course I always do on this podcast. We're always puffing away here in the spectator office. We do have quite a lot of whiskey, actually, right next to our podcast recording. We also do eat industrial amounts of cake. I mean, we've always had tradition of somebody's birthday we get some cake and a glass of champagne and that that actually wasn't that bad when there were only about six or eight of us but now there's like 30 or 40 of us it's, it's, every, constant. it's pretty constant are but, you rethink are you rethinking the policy well is it really after this re- i think we should bring discussion. in a podcast editor cindy you here cindy do you think we're corrupting your generation with too much cake and champagne no, I think the woman behind this uh, advice is probably not very fun to be with in the office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you, I think there's a kind of, there's like an interesting point here about public health and about the preventative agenda, which is really important to the NHS. I'm not sure that labelling food that sort of brings people together as bad and suggesting that it's the same as going to a smoke-filled pub and that's going to give you lung cancer is, is quite the way to improve the debate about public health and the preventive agenda, personally. Uh, you know, people bring cake into the office because it helps colleagues bond. It's I mean, you once baked a cake, didn't I, you? Well, when I had chickens, I once used to Once in bring, your life. I want, I, <laughs> no, 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 no. no, 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 no you, you brought them in. in every week when yes, I had chickens. Yes, exactly. Isabel Hardman... I brought eggs as well, actually. Isabel Hardman would come up with a cake which she baked herself. Yeah. And it was delicious, by Cindy's the way. Cindy's done that too. Yeah, yeah. and you, you're all trying to lose the weight. I've never baked still. a cake for any of you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we miss James Forsyth in this conversation? Yeah, if we had James Forsyth right now, he'd be telling us about the danger of cake. Though I think the fact that Number 10 actually offered cake at the lobby briefing today suggests that he hasn't taken full control of that policy yet. What cake was it? Oh, I missed it. I only heard after and then I was quite angry. Yeah, bring cake into the office. We have one slice, don't you? It's somebody's birthday, have a slice of cake. I have to say, what kind of country would we become if people stopped? I, th- I think, actually, it's also interesting. I think the calories on menu thing is much more potent than saying don't have cake in the office because actually 
you go to Wagamama and you realise that like something that looks healthy is actually your entire day's allowance of calories. Mm-hmm. I really don't think a bit of office cake is going to be the issue. I do actually have a huge problem with the calories on menus. Um, <laughs> but with that, thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Cindy. And thank you for listening.